1: Jeff Simon.
0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such a fun and amazing show for you this evening. Aaron Fitzgerald is here of Red Bull Air Force, the Red Bull Air Force. He's their uh, helicopter pilot, and uh, we're gonna get started with him in just a minute. Before we get started, as always, uh, just a few housekeeping notes. First of all, we are seeing such wonderful activity happening on socialflight.com and the socialflight mobile apps. We were just at a great fly-in over at Crow Island here in Stowe, Massachusetts, and there are just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of events happening. Actually, even that's an underestimate. There's thousands that we have in socialflight all the time, and so. Be sure to get out there. Go to a pancake breakfast, go to a a fly in, an antique fly in, a car show, any of these things that are happening combining air, aviation. Cars and so many other things at airports all around the country. We need to support general aviation. That is why we created Social Flight. And it's just wonderful to see so many people coming together. And of course, we travel to as many as we can. If you spot us there, chances are we have a little bit of swag to hand you as well, because I'm just so, so appreciative of all of you taking time out of your evening and supporting General Aviation, not just here on the show, but with everything that you do. When you get out there and you fly, you just help everything. And when you do that, uh, we also have the Social Flight Fly to Win Challenge flat and win challenge gives you points anytime you fly when you go to a new airport you get points you check in on the app you need the app in order to do that but it's very simple and we are giving away our next prize is uh, uh, september 1st it's a Lightspeed zulu 3 headset so there is still time to get into that drawing just by getting the social flight mobile app and checking in anywhere on the fly to win challenge now if you have Ever watched an air show? You know the feeling of watching aircraft do things that just seem to defy the laws of physics. But Aaron Fitzgerald takes that to a whole new level while piloting Bo 105 helicopter as part of the Red Bull Air Force. Aaron's an ATP-rated helicopter pilot with more than 9,000 flight hours. He built his career focusing on film and television productions has worked on countless movies and shows he's also worked as the aerial coordinator for several world record aviation projects and his ongoing work includes utility flying offshore support and flight test programs for nasa and lockheed martin and my if that were not enough aaron also flies the uh-60 Black Hawk on firefighting contracts with the forest service battering for battling excuse me forest fires in the western united states we all know how important that is i'm going to bring aaron on the line now to join us here please help me welcome to social flight live aaron fitzgerald how are you doing aaron
1: hey jeff hey, everybody uh
0: you know i love to get started with your uh, your backstory i'm in all. we just got back from oshkosh so you saw your performance there you did three days there And, uh, uh, oh my, I mean, there's just so many questions, but I want to start with your background, what actually got you into this and how you got started, because it's fascinating to me.
1: Well, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't raised in, a, in an aviation family, so I, I had to kind of find my own way. And, uh, you know, a lot of us uh, in the aviation industry now, many, many people were born into it or had family members that kind of helped them along the way. Uh, and that wasn't really my story. I kind of didn't. I came from a small town in Washington state called Wenatchee. And I uh, not only was I not related to any pilots, but I didn't really know any until about high school. So while it was something that I always wanted to do, I wasn't real sure what the first steps were. Uh, until I started talking to that teacher, his name was Mr. Griffiths, and he was great. He actually, he was a, he was a helicopter pilot, he flew in the army, and he, he was a science teacher, and he adapted the private pilot uh, curriculum uh, into a science class and called it Aerodynamics and Weather. So, without knowing it, I took the private pilot ground school as a science credit in high school, and I got to fly with him, that was my first experience in a plane, and that's kind of how it all started. And then, uh, it, I had a slightly circuitous route for a couple of years, uh, ended up in the Army when the Gulf War broke out. I joined the Army. I was in the 82nd Airborne. Uh, didn't actually make it to the war, though. I, they sent me to Korea. So uh, I joined because of the war, but uh, by the time I finished training and all that, uh, they, they didn't need us over there, so they sent me somewhere else. And when I got out, that's when I started flying. So a so little segue into how uh, uh, the delay, but uh, that's how I started flying is when I got out. I used the Army College Fund uh, and went right to uh, flight school and... and Pretty much, have flown almost every day since then.
0: Oh my, that's fascinating. And I mean, you know, you mentioned how your high school teacher made all the difference uh, in the world to you. And and first of all, I'm impressed that anyone was able to create a high school curriculum that involved aerodynamics and weather. That's that's pretty cool in in itself.
1: It was amazing. I mean, what what a great and and fortuitous opportunity for somebody like me who had no other connections or no idea at all how to get into aviation. And here was the pathway for it, you know, and it was—it just was something that kind of fell in my lap. I mean, of course, I pursued that class. I had heard about it. I wanted to sign up for it as soon as I could. Uh, But the fact that he was doing that—I don't know how many people that went through that class became pilots later, but uh, I certainly did. If you can help one, they say that it's worth it. So (laughs) there's at least who benefited from that class, and that was me.
0: Yeah, and you know, there's one thing that. I, I love about uh, one thing I definitely love about aviation is that it seems it's it's very inclusive. You know, we are always looking to make more pilots. All you need to do is talk to one and, and they'll drag you in one way or another. And it, your story also speaks to me because uh, I also grew up like no connection to aviation. Family knew nothing about it. No pilots and uh, didn't even didn't even know where the local airport probably was for, for the nearest GA. And uh, same concept in terms of it takes someone it wasn't until after college someone went and and just i just happened to be working with someone as a private pilot so reaching out having that be part of your life um i I think that's really important so it's it's a wonderful story that it was a high school teacher that did that for you when when you joined the uh, the military were you was there any part of that that had to do with flying or what i mean how did that in, in in terms of why you know what brought you in and what you wanted to do because you wound up of course jumping as part of the 82nd yeah. Airborne Tell a me little, a little bit
1: about that. Yeah I uh, I wanted the, the war was going on so I wanted to get you know get going as soon as possible uh, and so the only combat arms uh, job that was available at that time at the recruiting station where I was uh, was artillery so I ended up Joining uh, the artillery, my MOS was artillery, and then uh, I ended up in the 82nd Airborne. And I was only in for they had a two-year contract, so I only served uh, that two-year contract. They do they do that sometimes during wartime, or if they if they need to, you know, bolster the uh, enlistment rate, they'll offer a shorter contract. So uh, in that time, I did put together the warrant officer flight packet, uh, but. I, I wasn't organized at that age enough to get that turned in on time or whatever, and then my enlistment ran out, so I ended up being a civilian pilot. And it's worked out great. I'm, I'm really happy that there was you know another avenue for me. Uh, it would have been cool to be a warrant officer and fly in the Army, but that's not how I did it. I, I followed a different path altogether.
0: So tell me about the transition, first of all, from from how you, you said you used the, uh, uh, the the Army bill to, to go and get your, your pilot's license. And then how did you find your way in, tor- in terms of helicopters? Was that something always as a kid, or did that just evolve?
1: That was my only interest. I, I didn't even fly a fixed wing until much later. I was only focused on flying helicopters. And when I say I went to flight school, I went and trained in helicopters from the very oh. beginning. I flew helicopters for a good 20 years before I even started flying airplanes. That's just the only thing I was focused on was, was helicopters. So I graduated or gra- gravitated just toward that.
0: That's fascinating because I, I think almost every helicopter pilot I've ever met went through fixed wing to get there I don't know many that that actually started there that's that's really interesting do you can you reflect on having done that later whether that affected your your views on like how to fly or what's involved in it I mean you mm-hmm. certainly got really good at pedals
1: uh, yeah helicopter pilots uh, turn out to be really good tailwheel pilots later on when you go to learn that uh, but for me, um, because I was only focused on helicopters and that I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, it Even though you can save money by, by, training in airplanes first, they're a little bit less expensive. So everyone always counsels you to do that. Get your fixed wing, you know, then add the helicopter rating on later, which makes sense if you're gonna fly both or whatever. But I knew I was only gonna fly helicopters and I didn't have a lot of money, I had no money. Uh, I had some financial assistance from the Army College Fund, but I still had to come up with a lot of it myself. So because I, I had a limited amount of funds, I knew that I needed to focus only on what I wanted to do and that was helicopters. So um, as, as you all know, the, the private pilot, uh, requirements are 40 hours before you can take the check ride. So uh, I was so focused and so strapped for cash that when I landed from my private pilot check ride, I had 40.9 hours in my logbook. The <laughs> <laughs> was the check ride, so I didn't have any money to spare. I didn't. I didn't want to waste any time or any effort. I was tremendously focused on what I was doing uh, because I was limited. So I didn't really have a choice.
0: Wow, that's that. That's really interesting. And what helicopters did you uh, were you training on?
1: Well, I started in r twenty two, a little okay. two seat. Most most new helicopter pilots today train on that same one. It, it's it's a great little helicopter for what it is. Uh, it, it's it's you know inexpensive, and for that reason, there are a lot of helicopter pilots out there who who are all rated and have their license because of that helicopter because it brought the cost of training down.
0: Yeah, and and it's it. My understanding is it's. Uh, Kind of, it basically teaches you the hardware. You learn a lot. You know, you don't, you don't exactly have, I guess, a governor or things like that. Is is Well,
1: now they have governors. So you just, you know, add power and it automatically does it for you. But when I was learning how to fly Robinsons, there were no governors, so you had to manage the throttle with the twist grip, uh, like the old days. So that's good training. That really, really teaches you what you're asking of the helicopter when you're asking for more horsepower. You know, you tend to be a little gentler and a little smoother when you're managing the the rotor RPM yourself, because it's a very low rotor inertia system. So it's pretty unforgiving and the rotor decay, the rotor RPM decays very, very rapidly uh, if you let it. So you have to be very attentive and it just, it's a, I think it was a great trainer then, it's a great trainer now. Now they use governor's a little safer, but still a great trainer.
0: (laughs) Help people who aren't really familiar with helicopters understand some of those basics, because in an airplane you have this idea of the power curve, which is just about energy and inertia. But when you are doing what you just described, when you are manually controlling power to the rotors and the engine RPM, uh, it's a it's a bigger dance about what happens if you get behind a curve and the airplane, the helicopter, will just kind of basically fall if it doesn't have that ability. Like what? Uh,
1: yeah, kind of, yeah. So, the, the power available is the same, the, the, you know, the, the power curve you were talking about. It's when you slow down and you come out of what's called translational lift, then you need more horsepower. So, the slower you get below that that VY speed, the more power you need to add to maintain mm-hmm. altitude. So, when you're in a hover on a hot day at max gross weight, you're using you know a lot of power, almost maximum power, maximum continuous power just to hover, particularly when you're out of ground effect. Uh, so it's just a transition from one phase of flight to another. The airplane doesn't have that hover mode. Well, some do. Kevin Coleman and Kirby <laughs> Chambliss can do it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, when you're exactly. Vehicle, you're yeah, they horsepower. can do it. Yeah, if you're generating <laughs> your own lift instead of using airflow over the wings. Obviously, you're spinning the wings around, so it just takes more horsepower when you're when you're stationary.
0: Yeah, I think where I got uh, uh, you know was kind of a little experience is when I was given. Uh, early on, uh, a chance to try to take off and hover an Enstrom that had no governor. And they were explaining that red arc and that kind of concept of just just the hovering part, that if you don't keep your engine RPMs up to a certain point, you can't kind of overcome that. So kudos to you, because uh, I've seen people with the, you know, you get the marble on the table, and you're trying to practice what it what, what's involved in flying a helicopter, and it is... Uh, It is not easy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's only in the beginning that it feels like that. You know, uh, a lot of fixed wing pilots are they don't like helicopters because maybe they tried it and it wasn't natural to them. And, And no matter how good of an airplane pilot you are and how natural you are, Almost nobody can hover a helicopter on their first try. I, I've seen a couple of people do it. It's very rare. Uh, it just takes some time to push through that. So instead of going around hating on helicopters because they're hard to fly, just push through that first couple hours, and you'll see that there's the same as flying an airplane. It's easy once you learn it, but it is it is difficult in the beginning stages for sure. There's a lot more happening.
0: I'll I'll find a way to meet up with you at some point so you can prove that to me, and I can be the advocate of uh, no, it's not that hard. <laughs> so um, so tell me a little bit about once you uh, once you got through your training did you know what you wanted to to do with with helicopters because of course that world uh, is is all about business it's all those you know the helicopters for the most part are working vehicles for sure it's
1: a different sector of aviation not a lot of hobbyists flying around in helicopters because they're just so darn expensive you know they are a very few, uh, a small number of people who can afford to just uh, go goof around in a helicopter on their own dime. I am not one of those people. So I've always had to work as a helicopter pilot. Uh, But the the answer to how I got into what I'm doing, uh, I was working line service uh, at Santa Monica airport um, while I was, you know, finishing my training and I was a super low time pilot, brand new license. uh, But there were a few helicopters that were based at that airport. And it's a beautiful airport, Santa Monica. I hope they save it, but it doesn't look good. But it's an airport where you can stand on the runway and see the ocean, and there's a breeze blowing off the water every day. Southern California, it's amazing. But I worked there, and I, was, uh, and I noticed that one of the helicopter operators flew more than all the other helicopters combined. This one helicopter was just flying constantly. So like a magnet, I was drawn to that helicopter. Uh, and they were a news helicopter operation. So I uh, weaseled my way into a job there, uh, which is pretty funny, because every day you know, I was working line service, and I'd be over at their hangar. And I'd be buffing the hangar floor for, you know, no pay, just on my own dime. And they'd go, hey, we don't have a job for you, man. We're not going to hire you. And I'd go, okay, I get it. That's cool. I'll see you tomorrow. And then they'd come in tomorrow and I'd be washing one of their cars, you know. Dude, we told you there's no job for you. Like, oh, yeah, I know. That's cool. I get it. I'll see you tomorrow. And I did that every day until they finally needed somebody. And then it was like, oh, man, we, I guess we can hire this guy who's been cleaning everything. And so I got that t- <laughs> my first job. But what I discovered at that job uh, was that I really like flying cameras, flying camera systems, and solving the creative challenge of trying to put the camera in the right place using the helicopter as kind of a dolly uh, to to help the mission of of getting the shot. And and even though we were shooting news, uh, that basic fundamental skill is what kind of translated later on into uh, into making movies and the things I do now but I discovered that love for flying cameras by doing it I hadn't that was not my ambition I really didn't know what I wanted to do all I knew is I wanted to fly which is still my ambition I want to fly every day uh but I found that i I really love that side of it so I, I pursued that further and you know sought sought out as much of that type of work as I could and that's a big part of how I make my living now is making film and television.
0: Wow. So how does the news, news helicopter basically being your first chance out of the gate, how does uh, that crew work? Because you're, you're, you start at this job and you're told to go places, but I assume you've got someone trying to direct you to shots that then you've got to figure out, is that safe? How do I get there? How do I get to wherever, whatever I need to do? What's yeah. the, tell me a little bit behind the scenes on that.
1: It's it's collaborative uh, and it's and it's fast paced because you got to figure everything out that you just said you know as fast as possible because it's a race you know you want to be the first ones on the air so uh, it was a good kind of a pressure cooker how to learning how how to inter- interact with all these different skills all together at one time but but to break it down in a news helicopter there's essentially three jobs going on there's a pilot. Uh, a camera operator and a reporter and oftentimes one person is doing two of those jobs. So in the old days, all the pilots were the reporter and then there was a camera operator in the backseat. And then not recently, but that kind of evolved. And now a lot of the camera operators are reporters. Uh, So, so usually there's two people on board, sometimes three, but there are three jobs happening. So someone's either doing wearing two hats or there are three people on board. So whatever the mixture is, and I did all three of those jobs, uh, in different, at different times. So I was a cameraman reporter and I was also a pilot reporter. Uh, and the, uh, it's, it's evolved to where it's a little safer probably to have the camera operators reporting. So most of them, that's how they do it. But when I started, it was all, it was all pilot reporters. Um,
0: Wow. So, so when you're hovering up there, are you also manipulating the camera in many ways, or are you at least seeing what the shot is, uh, while you're doing that?
1: For sure, yeah. Wh- whoever's flying is doing everything they can to get the, the camera itself. Everyone's kind of working for the camera, so you're trying to get it to where it needs to be, and that's similar with, you know, making movies or telev- television shows, whatever you're doing. The the helicopter is just, uh, the, the you're the dolly grip. You're moving the camera around to where it needs to be to get the right angle. So in a news situation, you need to be able to tell the story. You need to get the obstacles out of the way, trees, buildings, mountains, things like that. So you have to move around and get the, the best possible shot, figure out what that is to tell the story some for someone to be able to look at the screen and see what's going on uh without any audio and then vice versa you want to report well enough to where if they close their eyes they can still visualize what you're showing them so that's the holy grail to be able to do both of those things perfectly at the same time
0: that's amazing have you ever had any kind of close calls in those situations
1: uh yeah Yeah, but I mean, I did it for you know nine years, so you see, you see a lot. Uh, anything, but no, any,
0: anything you can tell us yeah. about, even if you, even if you, the names are protected.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I saw some people do some questionable things, but uh, no, the 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 scary ones are the uh, if you get closer to another aircraft unintentionally, you know what you would call a near miss, uh, which those are. It, anyone who's come very close to another aircraft in the air and had a near miss it can tell you, and we've all had our, that experience to some degree or another, but it, you're not scared when it happens because it happens so fast. The first thing that you're, you feel is exhilaration that you're still alive. So you generally, both people start laughing in the helicopter and go, "Whoa, man, that was close. And then you figure out what happened and who did what wrong and why that happened and try to never do that again. Is
0: in, in such a con- congested area, of course, as Southern California, where you live and, and spend a lot of time working, I can imagine that that whole world is is a race to a destination in, in many cases, like you mentioned. Is is there an issue with having multiple aircraft all trying to get at the same kind of shot? Is that part of it, or is it just more random en route stuff?
1: Uh, the Closest call I had was when we were working at night um, underneath the ILS on an airport. So we had, we got a close-up look at a Gulfstream one night, but, but generally the, the news crews uh, and anyone who does that in any city can tell you it's very, very collaborative. All the pilots are talking to each other. You know, you look up from the ground and you see in, in LA, there might be six or seven helicopters over one thing. So it looks, uh, you know, exciting from the ground, but everybody's talking to each other. Everybody's in a position at an altitude that they've, that they've discussed over the radio or, or predetermined before they went there. So it's, it's very safe, and everybody does a really good job of keeping it safe, even in super congested airspace like Los Angeles.
0: Wow. What about the different so, – so what kind of helicopters were you flying at the news time, first of all?
1: Uh, primarily the AS350, uh, what we call the A-Star here in the States. They call it the squirrel everywhere else in the world. But, uh, the vast bulk of what we did, uh, the news that I did, and this was a long time ago. I, I stopped doing that a, a long time ago. So it's all changed now, but, uh, I flew jet rangers actually too, a little bit. So jet rangers and A-Stars.
0: Wow. And then what did you evolve to next? Like what took you, uh, uh, into some of the other side? Was it straight with, did you go straight from there into the The kind of entertainment business side of it, or what did that involve? Some of the other things you've done of of utility work.
1: Yeah, the 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 career arc has always been kind of one full time job, uh, and then a bunch of part time work outside of that as well. So uh, while I was doing news, I was doing some other types of production, uh, some movies and commercials and stuff like that on a sporadic basis. Uh, but then I transitioned from the full-time news job into a full-time utility job, flying 500s and A-Stars up in the mountains on power line projects. And uh, and that was amazing. I really, really loved that. I got to do that for eight or nine years as well. Uh, and while I was doing that, I was also continuously working part-time, uh, doing doing production work on the side. And then uh, a number of years ago, I don't know, five, ten years ago, I pretty much transitioned full-time into into production flying, just film and television work.
0: Wow. And And... Do, have you seen uh, an evolution of that uh, in that? Because obviously you're saying it's a, a, you know only a ten-year period, so that's not you know, necessarily uh, vast. But I know you know we had uh, Treat Williams on the show talking about some of the things that he's done in his movies, where you know they were like uh, from the sounds of it, you, you know, just randomly mounting places. People were literally just going to be standing and fighting with troll or others. Uh, inside aircraft i'd imagine it's it's insanely choreographed at this point now
1: yeah i uh i have been doing it full-time for about 10 years so there's been a little evolution there but i have my first on-screen credit was in 1999 so i have been around for a while and seeing kind of the evolution of it i don't know treat personally but uh we have a ton of mutual friends and i've known about him and heard stories about how great he is and everything so i'm sure i i got to go back and watch that episode because i'll bet he's got some (laughs) good stories Uh, But, yeah, it it has evolved. It's obviously it gets a little safer every year. You know, every time there's any kind of an accident or somebody gets hurt, they they make more rules. And so now we have uh, there's a lot of protocols that we use. Obviously, the goal is to keep everybody safe and never have any injuries. But, um, you know, you have to do things that that are that have an element of risk if you're if you're going to create. Cool stuff on on camera. In order to tell the story, you have to you have to do some things that are outside the envelope. So, uh, the the other evolution is that the group of pilots who who do that type of work tends to be getting a little smaller every year. So it's a kind of a smaller group, and those guys, because they have all that experience, uh, are the ones who end up getting the the, the bulk of the the high end work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely fascinating.
0: And I know you you had mentioned that you you've been doing quite a bit of that. Uh, Do you work in in just the helicopter side, or uh, do you also still, uh, you know, incorporate fixed wing or UAV or other stuff into your your photography and coordination?
1: Uh, I only fly helicopters, but we work with airplanes all the time. Uh, I work with hot air balloons, all different kinds of airplanes, jets, aerobatic planes, uh, you know, everything. Uh, but I'm, I am only work as a helicopter pilot. I do fly airplanes. I, I own one, and I love it, and, and I love flying it. I try to fly something almost every day. Uh, but the the work I do professionally is all in helicopters.
0: Wow. And and so did now, you, of course, you got into the firefighting side and the utility work, which is a whole different type of helicopter, it would seem, at least from the size. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, the, the, the basic skill of long lining, uh, you know, having an external load on a line that, that comes from the utility side is, is what kind of helped me segue into elements in the production world, you know, slinging camera systems. And sometimes, you know, we've, we've rigged uh, a platform that has stunt people on it and stuff like that. So it's kind of a transferable skill set. Uh, and the same with fighting fire, you know, in a utility environment, whether you're fighting fire in a Black Hawk or you're building power lines in a 500, it's kind of the same Basic foundational skill set. Uh, I came into the Blackhawk much later in life. Actually, uh, kind of on a, a crooked route, like it sometimes happens. Uh, it, doing uh, production TV work, we were using Blackhawks for uh, different TV shows and uh, movies and stuff. So I was around the the Blackhawk crew, and we were adding uh, that that company. It's called Helenet in Los Angeles. That's uh, you mentioned Kevin Larosa. I work a lot with him. Kevin Larosa Jr. he's a big aerial coordinator, and I have him to thank for a lot of the work that I get. We work together quite a bit, and uh, through him and through his company that he works with, called Helinet, that's how I got introduced to the Blackhawk. So I, I came into the firefighting kind of, you know, I shuffled in from the side because I came in uh, from the production side.
0: Yeah, you know, we uh, we did a really short spot with Kevin out at Air Venture, and uh, and he's going to be uh, coming on the show as well, and it, of course. His is is in the this the fixed wing world and all this other coordination um but uh it it must really be fascinating to have w- kind of the foot in both worlds to to one day be out there fighting fires another day long lining or doing some utility work and 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 then next thing you're you're out doing what we'll what we'll get to next with with Red Bull
1: yeah it's it's cool for me to you know the 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 air show side of it is is getting to share what we do and what we see with the general public. Because, you know, whether you're firefighting or whether you're out doing utility or even making a movie on a, on a, a closed set, you're working kind of in obscurity, especially fighting fire and building power lines. There's nobody around. Nobody sees how good those, those pilots are. And some of the best flying I've ever seen in my career our utility pilots out there building power lines—it's—it's it's amazing the level of skill that they bring every single day. You know, for long hours and really mountainous and difficult terrain and, and difficult conditions out there doing some tremendous work, and—and and nobody sees it. You know, you turn the light switch on, the lights come on. You don't—you don't think about all the people up there building those power lines. It's very, very difficult work, and it's very challenging and dangerous. So. For me to be able to take some of that and bring it to the public and go fly helicopters at an air show and show people what it can do, uh, that that's cool for me. I love having kind of one foot in, in in each world, and I'm just as comfortable in you know in the middle of nowhere with my boots on uh, as I am in front of a crowd at an air show. I, both both parts of flying are are equally rewarding to me, and I enjoy them both.
0: Wow, what what's it like uh, within the helicopter world of of switching models of going up to such different things you know obviously some of it's a normal progression from an r-22 to a 44 or something but you're putting you're putting you know aircraft out there of the black hawk and things like that when when you first tackled moving up what what's involved in making that transition
1: well it's just like moving up in the fixed wing world too you know you you learn all the systems of the of the new aircraft and there's some Book work that I I, I don't take to uh, as as easily, so that's work for me. I have to really study. Uh, you know, you do the ground school and then you go out and do whatever the transition training is. If it's something small, like if you're moving into a 500 or, or an A star, then you know the the transition period is a little shorter. But if you're moving into a Black Hawk or something bigger, you know, there's a lot of civilian Chinooks out there and 61s and great big helicopters that uh, that people are moving up through into larger aircraft, and you just you work your way through it. It seems impossible at first. When I first started training on the Blackhawk, I was amazed at how complicated that thing is. But the more it comes together for you, the more you study it, the more you learn how to fly it and work it, the more you realize what a masterful piece of engineering that thing is. So it's it's a fun challenge to kind of move up and move back and forth and fly different aircraft all the time. It's not wow. uncommon to fly a, a Blackhawk and A-Star and a BO-105 within you know 24 hours of each other.
0: And are there are there type ratings within the helicopter world or is it
1: Yeah, above 12,500 pounds? Anything with a gross weight that meets that you know, criteria or higher, you need a type rating for. So I do have a Blackhawk type rating, but that's the only type rating I have. Everything else falls under that. So,
0: What's the is the Blackhawk the biggest helicopter you've had in a, a chance to fly, even though that's the largest one you're actually rated for? Or have you actually flown hel- uh, larger ones?
1: Nope, that's the biggest one I've ever flown. I got to fly the simulator uh, at Quantico uh, with the Marine One Squadron. A guy I grew up with was, was one of the Marine One pilots a number of years back. So I got to go there and fly everything they have in the simulator, but in, uh, in real helicopters, the Blackhawk's the biggest thing I've ever had control of.
0: Is, is there anything on your bucket list of, uh, of, of aircraft?
1: It's never ending. I can't make a list that long. I want, I want everything. I want to fly Mustangs. I want to, I've always loved the Cobra, you know, the attack helicopters, the things that civilians generally don't get a chance to fly. Uh, those are the those are the things on my bucket list. But it, it's it's literally never ending. There's so many planes and helicopters that I would buy if I, if I was rich.
0: Yeah, you you, you know you you mentioned sure. the uh, Nook there. I've always I've always wondered what's involved when you start going to <laughs> two separate rotors and having to do everything separate. I can only imagine.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'd only be guessing. I've never flown one. I've ridden <laughs> in them. I've jumped out of them, but never flown one.
0: So so tell me about the path to the the big thing. The uh, you know flying for Red Bull. What. What, how do you how do you make that leap
1: uh, the short answer is Red Bull finds you they don't you, you can't apply for the job the phone just rings and they offer you the job and that's how it goes but the path for me I kind of figured out how it all went but uh, I was working in film and television as I mentioned a bunch of times here but they uh, in that capacity I was working as a vendor to Red Bull my little production company called airborne images was providing helicopter services to Red Bull so I was shooting Their events and dropping skydivers and any any helicopter services that they needed in north america my little company was providing that uh for for red bull which was great because you're at the coolest events and you're at races and you know you're covering all kinds of cool stuff for them and moving their people around skydiving whatever they needed with a helicopter i was doing that so uh while uh they they started their aerobatic program here in the states in 2005 2006 around there and that was chuck aaron that was flying it um, and when he retired at the end of 2015, at that point, I was already a known entity to Red Bull, uh, because I had been providing all the ancillary helicopter services, uh, surrounding that. Uh, and so they offered me the job and I took it. So, uh, that was a, 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 an amazing phone call. I can tell you that because, uh, I, it was not my ambition to fly aerobatics. Uh, I had never flown aerobatics in airplanes or helicopters and, uh, they offered me the job, you know, and of course they they tell you, well, we'll train you and everything, and, and the training was amazing. So uh, I have to back up a little bit and tell you how Red Bull's program works, uh, but there, there is a, a pilot in, in Austria. He's a German guy. His name is Rainer Wilke, uh, and he started flying the BO-105 in the German Army in about 1974, uh, and then he became the aerobatic demonstration pilot uh, around 1984, and he did that for a number of years. He was the, he was the display pilot in Germany flying uh, BO-105 aerobatic display sequence uh, for the military. And then he did some work for uh, the manufacturer, which was MBB. So he was pretty well-known uh, aerobatic display pilot, Reiner. There was a couple other ones in in Germany, but but he's the one who who started our program. When he got out of the army, out of the German army, he went to work for Red Bull and started the aerobatic program. So every there there are five of us now. Um, there have been six total in in the history of the program, but all of us trained under Reiner. He he trained every Red Bull pilot. He trained me. Uh, and our chief pilot, Blackie Schwartz, he he provided my initial training. I flew with him a little bit, and then I went and did a full, you know, aerobatic course and then advanced course, all with Reiner. Uh, the subsequent training was all with Reiner, and it was it was eye opening. It's really amazing because I was it, I was new to the bo 105 as well, so I was learning a new aircraft and learning aerobatics all at the same time, and uh, it it's been a really fun ride, and it's really a huge. Uh, Honor, and it's a tremendous privilege to be on the team and to be able to do what we do and share it with the aviation community. It's just been an unbelievable ride so far.
0: Wow, that's amazing. T- take us inside uh, a little bit of what, what is involved in, in, when you start to kind of turn everything on its head with what you're learning in that program, because it's, it's gotta be a whole lot different than the things you've learned before. Uh, of of what you can do and and how to do it like you said first of all it's an aircraft that can do it
1: yeah i mean it's built it was built to be able to fly nap of the earth uh, at high speed and high speed being a relative term we're talking about helicopters here so it only goes about 120 knots at max continuous power so at that speed they needed to be able to fly nap of the earth and and withstand the g load sweep from you know when you go when you Pull up over an obstacle. There's a big positive G load there, and then when you dive back under cover, there's a negative G load there. So they needed to build a transmission and a rotor system uh, that was capable of of handling that, um, you know, over and over again. So they designed the Bo 105 for that purpose, and then the aerobatics was kind of uh, a, a happy uh, byproduct. So the uh, the German army guys. It was it was uh, Charlie Zimmerman. Um, Siggy hoffman and then reiner those guys are the ones who developed the program uh in germany in this particular helicopter uh so learning it was was basically for me just an introduction to what those guys had already developed and and you know uh and perfected so it was it was interesting to learn you know to, to fly the helicopter upside down to take it all the way around through a loop and roll it and to be upside down in a helicopter was a very strange sensation in the beginning uh but Once you learn how to do it and get comfortable with it and learn how to kind of refine the maneuver and and do a better job of it, then they just become maneuvers like any other maneuver you learn. Like when you learn how to land or learn engine out procedures or anything else, uh, the aerobatics kind of get to that point too. And then once it becomes a skill that you have kind of mastered or you can never really perfect it, but you can get better at it and you can always try you know, aim for perfection and the evolutionary process of that is what keeps me motivated. Um, but, but as you start to build that foundational skill set, then you can try to refine it and bring more energy and make the show better. And that's kind of where I am now. I'm just trying to trying to get almost as good as Reiner. I'm nowhere near as good as he is yet. I'll never get there, but I'm trying. And I, uh, I I make a conscious effort to go. I practice almost every day. And I, I go out there and just try to do a better job and try to make the show better. And, you know, uphold the standard because it's an honor to have the job. And I, I don't want to let anybody down.
0: So, so amazing. Our, our, I mean, you make it sound so seamless and fluid to be able to do that and then and then move into a routine, but I've, I've got to believe that with what you're doing, there's old rules that were like, never get near this env- envelope, never get near this thing, that now it's like, no, 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 in this case, you blow right past that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I had to unlearn some muscle memory 20 years of previous helicopter flying, trying to keep the dang things right side up. And then here I am making full control deflections. You know, in a helicopter, you you move the cyclic in a circle about this big in the center and you just you make very small, refined control inputs. But when you're doing aerobatics in a BO B-0105, we actually go to the stops in the whole left hemisphere. So all the way to the forward stop, the aft stop, everywhere on the left stop. Uh, it, it's that's something you have to teach your hands and feet to do. Why the,
0: left? Why the left hemisphere?
1: Uh, just because of the, the, the way the aerodynamics work on that rotor system and, the, and it, because it rotates in the direction that it does and the, the orientation of the tail rotor and the way it's, the way it's all set up, that everything works better to the left. So we basically do the whole show to the left. All the rolls are left, everything hammerheads always to the left. And also because you want to use the helicopter's tendencies in your favor. You don't want to fight against it, right? So when, in, in a BO-105, you, when you add power, it wants to pitch up and roll right. And when you reduce power, it wants to pitch down and roll left. So you use those tendencies to control the roll rate or or the pitch rate, whatever you're trying to do. You know, you use your power to your favor and, and not try to fight it. So everything we do is to the left. And everything we do in the display sequence is well within the performance envelope of the helicopter. We There's no exceedances or anything like that. It's all all pretty easy on the machine. It's almost impossible to hurt that thing aerodynamically. You can still over temp it, over speed it, over torque it, all the things you can do with a helicopter, but aerodynamically speaking, it's fairly indestructible. It's a great little machine and it was really well engineered way ahead of its time. That's fascinating
0: and a great Easter egg to everybody who's watching right now. If you're going to see the show through different eyes next time you looked at all the roles are to the left, because I can tell you, I've seen your show many times. It never occurred to me that they're all in the same role. Uh, the, the roles are all in the same direction.
1: am oh, I giving away too much information here. I don't want to you know, <laughs> know how we make the sausage.
0: Oh, no, it's just, <laughs> you, no, are you kidding? You're making like heroes and uh, uh, of everybody who's watching because they're going to turn to the person next to them at the air show and they're going to yeah. go, yeah, um, I know, Aaron. If you watch this show, you're going to see everything goes to the left. Let me tell you why. It has to do with when you add power, reduce power. <laughs>
1: you, okay. you can control the this.
0: thing, right, right? We're all pilots. Everyone who's on there is going to be a pilot. They're going to know they, the expertise you're doling out here. It's making everyone an expert and a hero.
1: <laughs> well, you know what? You think about that. Sometimes when you're flying the display, particularly at a place like Oshkosh, you know that some of the people in the crowd are, are – Air show pilots and aerobatic pilots that are that have way more skill than than I do. So you're you're really trying to be on your best behavior, thinking, Oh my goodness, Kirby Chambliss is down there. Kevin Coleman's watching me. Lee Lauterbeck's on the ground. Like these guys can see me. I have to do perfect or close as close as I can. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, Kirby's an awfully nice guy. I don't think he'd be thinking that way.
1: <laughs> uh, well, actually, in his case, he's usually in the air with me. We perform together, so uh, that's a huge honor, a tremendous privilege to fly with him and and uh, and Kevin Coleman, my two teammates. Those guys, they're unbelievable. They can practically rip the wings off of any aircraft. It's it's really something to see them fly and to be up, you know, with them. We perform together in the aerobatic box, so that's that's something that I never take for granted. That's for sure. I, I
0: want to see you make a video uh, uh with the helicopter like he did with the police chasing him and all that other stuff that was that, that, oh my that was,
1: it's funny that you know that was me in the video right it was <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was before I had this job and I was just working as you know the production support guy that that was me in the video with really bad acting I would like to <laughs> you saw that. oh
0: I am gonna watch that video right after the show no question I'm gonna, I'm gonna
1: my hair was a little less gray then, but yeah, that was me.
0: Oh my, that is one of my favorite videos produced. So, so kudos to you for for working on that. That was great.
1: Yeah, we got to rip around inside Texas Motor Speedway, and we flew around the the, uh, the fairgrounds and everything. It was it was really cool. And the production company that's Red Productions in uh, in Dallas, and they did an amazing job. It was it was a ton of fun, and it's a ton of fun to watch. It's really funny about yeah,
0: I remember, you know, he was on the show and we talked about the making of that. And that was, uh, I had just had, had not connect the dots that that was you. So what a cool coincidence.
1: Yeah, that was a fun one.
0: Oh, man. So um, first of all, uh, I mean, a lot of people, you talk about the, the, the uh, BO-105. That, like you said, that goes way back. Um, are you aware of, of any other helicopters that have ever been designed to do it? Or is that just it? It's that one helicopter.
1: Oh no! There's a lot of them that'll do it. In fact, they uh, there was a parallel program in the United States. Um, Well, let's go back to the very, very beginning. The very first loop that was ever recorded on film was in 1949. It was a Sikorsky test pilot uh, by the name of Tommy Thompson, and he was flying an S-52 with a 245-horsepower with Franklin engine, which was horribly underpowered and unreliable uh, by today's standards. But he was out testing, and he had a mechanic with him, and Tommy had been a, uh, a fighter pilot in the war. He flew uh, P-40s, so he was used to doing rolls, and the mechanic, they were doing all kinds of maneuvering, trying to test this helicopter and ring it out, and the mechanic said, do you think it'll do a loop? And Tommy said, sure, I think it will. You know, So they did it, and they, they did three or four loops. And then they landed, and then... Um, and I read that this. Is, this is firsthand from him because he wrote it in a book that was unpublished, but I got to read the book. And so this is how he said it went down. But uh, he landed from from doing those loops. And they, the engineers came out and said, hey, Mr. Sikorsky would like to see you in his office. And so he did the thousand yard walk down the hallway. Oh, man, I'm going to lose my job. I got this great job. And now I'm going to get fired for doing loops in the helicopter. And he walked in and, uh, and Igor Sikorsky said, hey, uh, w- was that you doing loops in my helicopter? And uh, Tommy said, "Yeah, sir, that was me. I'm sorry." He goes, "No, no. Do you think you can do it at a lower altitude so that we can film it?" So he said, "Sure." So they went out that same day. Uh, they went out and and Tommy did a whole bunch of loops at really low altitude. And if you can you can Google it right now and watch it on YouTube. It's still up. Uh, It's Tommy Thompson, first helicopter loop, Sikorsky. Just put that combination in, you'll see it. But he was doing loops in that little underpowered helicopter entering at like 40 feet AGL. Incredible. So he was the first. Tommy Thompson was the guy who started it all, uh, as far as we can all prove. But to answer the question, the BO-105 is not the only one, uh, and there have been parallel programs in the United States, too. There was a guy named Rich Lee uh, who was a test pilot. At, uh, at Hughes and Boeing, and he, he he developed the Apache. So, he was one of the main test pilots when they were developing the Apache system. So, he did a full aerobatic routine in the Apache, and he traveled all around the world showing it off at air shows when they were trying to sell it to other countries. So, he did a full aerobatic display at a mission weight Apache. So, th- they didn't strip it down. They didn't go light fuel. They flew it at mission weight, and he would take a random one off the line. So, he wasn't using a modified one or anything. And he went out at a at a really heavy weight, like 16 or 18,000 pounds. I'm not sure, I, I'm not an Apache pilot, I don't know. But but he, for many years, he performed in an Apache. And then he also, in his capacity working for Hughes, um, he, he performed in a 500 and I think even a 300. But he and four other test pilots were on the first statement of aerobatic competency uh, cards that were issued for helicopters. Uh, that was in 1986 or seven, I think. Uh, so they were the first ones in the United States to, to, to fly aerobatics, you know, legally with, with the waiver, the card that I have now, the statement of aerobatic competency card is what all air show performers have. It allows you to do aerobatics in waivered airspace, but Rich Lee was the first one in the U S uh, to do that. And to have that card him and four other, uh, uh, Hughes test pilots at that time.
0: Wow, that is so cool. So it does, even though we're used to seeing it in this one aircraft, uh, there's the 500 and others that, that that can do some of these maneuvers. The Blackhawk will do it, too. <laughs> have you ever been tempted?
1: The Blackhawk will do it, too.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'm going to have... Yeah. Uh, going have the first uh, long lining uh, aerobatic performance. Uh, that I do. I've
1: never done anything with it with an external load, and I probably never will. I get asked about that a lot, though.
0: Yeah, you hold hold as long as you keep that same one G and don't turn someone into sausage if it's a wing walker at the end, then you'd be in yeah, good shape. We
1: do a really cool stunt that uh that Luke Aikens and I invented. My teammate Luke Akins is a famous skydiver, and he's he's the guy who jumped with no parachute from 25,000 feet and landed in a net. You should interview him, by the way. He's amazing. But he and I invented a stunt that we call the roll exit. So I do there is external load aerobatics, kind of. He starts out on the skid right outside the pilot's window. So he and I are pretty much face to face. And I and I come into the aerobatic box doing about 90 knots. So he's barely hanging on there. And uh, he's wearing a parachute, of course. And then I, I initiate a roll. And then to to initiate the roll, you pitch up first, right? So we establish kind of an upward energy. And as we go upward, and I start the loop, or the roll rather, when you roll, now looking nose on, the the, the rolling moment, your the axis is the is the rotor head. So the skids are outside of that axis. So it it gives him even a, a more upward trajectory so you're impart, imparting more energy on him so he actually exits the skid as I enter the roll and we diverge like that it's really cool there's a bunch of video of it on online if anybody wants to see it wow and and that's called uh, uh, you said the roll exit I guess you just name it whatever you want when you invent the <laughs> It's pretty exciting. We worked our way into it, of course, you know, in the beginning, we were really, really conservative, but we have it now to where the last few we've done, I, I can actually launch him so he's above the helicopter for a couple seconds. It's really cool.
0: Oh, man, that is amazing. Wow. Yeah,
1: it's a lot of fun. We're really good friends, so it's there's a lot of trust there. There's a lot of, you know, almost telepathic communication. We can kind of tell what each other's thinking by looking at their body language, and he knows what I'm going to do, and I know what he's going to do, and it's, uh, it's fun developing things like that with, with people that you know and trust so well.
0: Uh, I, can, I can only imagine. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the world of, of kind of the, the Red Bull and doing the touring and p- playing at all these air shows. This has got to take you all over the place. And it's also fascinating to me that as opposed to almost everything else I've been exposed to where the, the performer kind of exists first and finds the sponsor, this is, this is Red Bull that's actually running this?
1: Yes. they Like I said earlier, they choose you. So uh, you, the, the skydivers that we have on our team are all world champions in one discipline or another. Uh, our two fixed-wing pilots in the United States, Kirby Chambliss, whose resume is, is impossible to list. It's so long. Five-time aerobatic national champion, two-time world champion. Uh, our newest member of the team is Kevin Coleman, who's just an absolute beast of a pilot if you've seen him fly it's just incredible it 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 hurts my brain watching him fly the g-forces that he can withstand it's just unbelievable but those two guys you know working with them is, is a huge privilege and just seeing what they can do. And you can, the sky's the limit to what you can come up with and what you can try. You know, we've, we've kind of, we, we've worked out our own moves that we believe are the first ones that people have done. And, the, and our, and our teammates in Europe on the flying Bulls do the same thing. So they've worked out some, some cool stuff that they do together. And it's just fun to work in an environment where once you're kind of on the team and once once they give you the reins then it they they allow you and in some ways expect you to expand the boundaries of it you know what here's this platform here's all this you know support go show us what you can do and it, and it's up to us to you know ex- expand that to go out and, and find new ways to entertain people see what these aircraft will do see what parachutes can do see what you know wingsuits expanding the human experience and it's really such a huge honor to be part of it and and to you know have the support of a company like that you know it's privately held there's mr. Dietrich, Dietrich Mateschitz, is the Austrian guy runs the whole thing owns it hit uh, him and his son and they're ju- they're just great people and it really is a, a worldwide global family and it really feels like it too so it's it's a, it's a huge honor huge privilege
0: and and that and what is the, the crew like like what's what's it What makes up kind of going to air shows, getting the helicopter there to the show,
1: maintenance, all those things? So you'd think there's this huge team of people that do that, and there's not. (laughs) When the helicopter travels (laughs) around the country, it's me and my colleague Stan Gray. He's a helicopter pilot, too. He and I travel the country together, and he'd be laughing right now because I'm implying that I fly the helicopter around the country with him, and I don't. He flies it all over the country, I generally take an airliner and meet him at the location of the show. Sometimes I fly with him, but it's pretty rare. He does all the work and then I show up at the air show and do the air show and then leave. So I I, uh, I, I have to humbly admit that he does most of the work and I pretty much have all the fun. But it's just he and I. And then of course we have contracted maintenance at our base. Uh, in Los Angeles, we have a, a company that's been doing our maintenance uh, for since I took over the program in, in 2016. Uh, those guys do an amazing job, and we we have uh, fortunately we're very well supported, so we can keep those aircraft in in pristine condition at all times. And we I tend to my belief is that if you have an older aircraft, and ours are older, they were built in 1982 and 1985. We have two of them. Um, the, the health of the air, of the aircraft is getting better as we go, so they're in better condition now than they were when I took over, and they're just continually getting better. I like to put new parts, new components, new, whatever we can do to make those things top-notch, we do it.
0: Do they require uh, a fair amount of maintenance uh, when you're not at, uh, through, through home uh, or going through your home base uh, during the whole season?
1: Yes, we have all the same inspections and all the same maintenance program that uh, anyone who operates a BO-105, or any helicopter for that matter. So it's all standard maintenance and we do it all. We have, we have uh, some remote areas, places, one in Chicago, one in Shreveport, uh, where, where we can do maintenance if we have to. And uh, the answer is yes, we do a lot of maintenance on the road. We try to do all the heavy maintenance over wintertime. Uh, in the off season, we bring them both to Los Angeles and tear them down, and you know, kind of refresh everything. We we'll replace whatever components need to be replaced. If you if you can if you get lucky, you can time all your maintenance for the winter off season, but it doesn't always work that way.
0: And and you have too, because obviously it's a little difficult to to you know at the speeds that helicopters fly to just do, uh, hey, you know, Monday we're gonna be in Los Angeles and Tuesday we're gonna be in New York. So what's involved in managing two helicopters for shows?
1: Uh, we have so I mentioned my teammate Kevin Coleman. He owns his family and he own an FBO at Shreveport, uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is northern Louisiana. So we have a remote base there. So during the season, when the show season starts in spring. We fly, uh, we stand, flies one of the helicopters out there and then it stays out there for the whole season. We don't bring it home till you know, October, November after the last show on the East Coast or in the Midwest. Anything, you know, east of the, the Rockies, basically, we use that aircraft for those shows and then we keep one on the West Coast. So they, you're right, it's impossible to do back-to-back shows uh in different corners of the country with with one aircraft, so we have two. If we had to schedule a season to where we just hopped around and, and it you know made sense to do it with one helicopter, we would do that. But uh, fortunately, we have two, and it works great that way. It gives us a little bit of redundancy and really helps us you know cover the country.
0: Does, does Stan ever uh, does, does the helicopter wind up inverted on on route? <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, done some loops and rolls. Yeah, yeah. I don't. He doesn't do it in route. But there's too much. <laughs> We strip it down. We're not. We're not like uh, Rich Lee. We don't fly it at mission weight when we do the display. So everything's out of it. It's completely empty. I go with super light fuel. Uh, and then when when Stan's flying it around the country, it's pretty close to max gross weight when he takes off because he's got a full bag of fuel and all of our equipment, and tools, and everything else. So his job's a little different than mine. Um,
0: one more thing. Back on the, the technical end, we, we hear a lot, uh, especially for those of us that aren't you know helicopter gurus. Um, about the, the fixed, you know, the rigid rotor system.
1: Mm-hmm. Can,
0: can you explain that to people about the difference between that and what it, what, how it makes all this possible?
1: Yes, um, it, it's not required that you have a rigid rotor system to do what we do, but it, that gives you a much wider performance envelope uh, aerodynamically. So it, the rigid rotor system is, is perfect for what we do, and that's why the BO105 is so well suited to it. And what we mean by rigid rotor system is that the, the rotor head itself has no hinges uh it and it it it, the three forces you need to absorb in the rotor head are flapping lead lag and feathering or pitch right so most rotor heads have hinges for that or or elastomeric bearings or something that, that bends or turns or allows those things to happen but the rigid rotor system all those forces except for pitch are absorbed in the blade itself so the rotor head is Rigid. There's no hinges. There's no bearings. Nothing like that. So it, it, it what it does then is the blades stay in plane. They don't flap around quite so much like they do in other helicopters. So you're, there's no danger of striking the tail boom uh, when you're when you're inverted. You know, we actually do a maneuver where I'm upside down descending in the inverted position doing a a pedal turn and if you did that in a normal helicopter the blades it flex down you'd have a boom strike and chop your own tail boom off which is really easy to do with some systems but the rigid rotor system stays in plane uh, no matter how you load it from which direction or you know how positively negatively how whatever you do it stays in plane just like a wing and that's what makes it perfect for what we do Wow, that's amazing.
0: Well, I want to make sure also that, that we understand a little bit about what you've got there with your, your family, because you have two sons that are pilots as well mm-hmm. yep, and, yep. Uh, and, and on their way to, to greatness in, this, in, in the same way. So t- tell me a little bit about your family and your kids.
1: Uh, well, so the two sons you're talking about are Owen and Liam. Owen's 17. He's a private pilot, and he's working on his instrument right now. Um, he has decided that this is what he wants to do for a living. He wants to be a pilot. So he's he, he puts a lot of effort into it, a lot of studying like all of us do when we're learning. Uh, he's going into his senior year in high school and his goal is to uh, finish the instrument and the commercial before he leaves high school. And he's on track for that. So he's looking really good on that end. And he's, he's also flying aerobatics. I mentioned that we have a decathlon so, He's very, very fortunate. Uh, His situation's different than mine was. Uh, He was born into an aviation family, so he gets to drive over to the airport and go fly whenever he feels like it, Uh, and he does. And he flies aerobatics and he's really good at it, but he's also really really focused on the instrument stuff and and getting all that done. But uh, I gotta brag a little bit. One thing that he did, which is super cool, and I like to shine a little bit of light on, uh, on his first solo, uh, on his 16th birthday, We were all there, of course, and he's in the decathlon, and he went and uh, he did his three takeoffs and landings and then uh, proceeded to take off again and flew to the aerobatic practice area and flew the sportsman's aerobatic routine on his first solo flight. So that was pretty cool. We're all really proud of him, really happy for him. Uh, And then his little brother, the other brother, is 16. That's Liam. He is a solo student right now, also flying the decathlon. He also does aerobatics. Uh, but he's, you know, he's just getting into the the solo student part of it. He's not working on his instrument or anything like that yet. He's focused on the private. So aiming for that. He might do it on his 17th birthday, maybe not. You know, we've hit some milestones with the boys on their birthdays, but those aren't, you know, it's, it's not set in stone. It's not a requirement. There's no pressure. They train at their own pace.
0: Oh, man, that must be so, so cool. And I have not heard ever before the three takeoffs and landings. You got your solo and then you head out and do an aerobatic routine. That is fantastic. <laughs>
1: not the first and only one to have done that, but I don't know too many others. I think Kevin Coleman did that. I don't I'm sure somebody watching knows somebody who did that, but it doesn't happen very often. So we're, we're pretty happy for him.
0: It's it's very very cool so i'm i i'm impressed that is that is very, very very cool
1: formation too he's been trained well i mentioned kevin larosa earlier he is one of the best formation pilots anywhere out there you know he's shot top gun and all that and uh, owen has been lucky to train with kevin so he's uh, he, he's really getting some good instruction from some of the best in the game so when you're on the radio and and owen keys up and says two's in you better be ready when you look over your shoulder cuz he is right there <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh man, that is uh that is great. Well, Aaron, I just want to say thank you so, so much for taking time out of your busy day, your evening, and joining us here on Social Flight Live. I was thrilled to see you perform out at Air Venture and couldn't wait to have you here on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was an honor to fly at oshkosh too. I love that show.
0: Absolutely. So I uh I hope we'll be talking to you again soon and uh, and, and it's just just great, everything that, that you're doing to kind of bring this and, uh, to, out to everybody else and your passion that, that we've talked about that you have for getting more people involved in aviation that come from that background you mentioned, that uh, like both of us, were we weren't born into aviation and you have to claw your way there. And I have a lot of respect for you for having done that and helping bring that to others.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Well, once you're in, it's a meritocracy. You know, the airplane doesn't care how rich you are, poor you are, how old or young you are. It just you just have to do it right. So there's room for everybody. Absolutely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, everybody. All right.
0: And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time to join us from Social Flight Live. And uh, we will be back next Tuesday. We have a wonderful show with legendary NASA flight director and experimental aircraft builder and writer Paul Dye. That is Tuesday, August 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. Please be here for that show because it is going to be very, very special. On Tuesday, August 23rd, aerobatics performer Melissa Burns will be with us uh, as she goes by. If you just want to look it up, it is Sports Gal. Uh, and uh, she is very she is just so so cool in a ray of light and it'll be wonderful to have her on the show as well and then on tuesday august 30th boeing 737 educator aviation mechanic pilot cfi so many things to list melvin williams will be joining us here on the show until next time thank you so much for joining us here on social flight live and i wish you all blue skies